0: Hello, welcome to the Jew3 project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 project and Today, we're joined by someone who's no stranger to the Jew3 Project podcast. He hasn't been on here in a while, but he's been on here several times. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've been rolling with us for the duration of the podcast, he's, mm-hmm. no, he's a familiar face. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Dennis Edwards, welcome, Dr. Edwards.
1: Oh, it's so good to be with you again, Lisa. It has been a while, but I'm so grateful for the ministry that you've been uh, doing. Thank you.
0: Well, for those who uh, don't know who you are, Mm -hmm. maybe new to seeing you, Mm -hmm. just tell our audience a little bit about yourself.
1: Yes, I'm a product of New York City, grew up in New York, and then after getting an engineering degree, I felt the Lord was calling me into ministry. Wasn't sure what that meant, but I wound up becoming a pastor, planted a church in Brooklyn, New York, and then I'm from New York City, and then I uh, served churches in Washington, D.C., And along the way got a doctorate in new testament and was an adjunct professor for years most recently i've been a full-time professor at north park theological seminary and this past year i became the dean of the seminary
0: awesome well we're excited to have you on to talk Mm -hmm. about something that's your specialty we're in this series can we trust the bible Mm -hmm. and um Mm -hmm. today we're going to talk to you about the new testament Uh, You are a New Testament scholar, so Mm -hmm. I'm excited to have you on about uh, why we should trust the New Testament. Um, One of the challenges, I think, for people understanding the Bible or the trustworthiness is them not really Mm -hmm. understanding how we got the Bible to begin with. Uh, We talked a little bit Mm -hmm. with uh, another professor on the Old Testament, Dr. Eric Redman, on Mm -hmm. how we got the old testament canon and why we should trust the old testament canon Mm -hmm. but when we think about the canonization of the new testament can you talk about the process of canonization and even well starting before the process of canonization Mm -hmm. can you just tell our audience what the canon what it means when we say Mm -hmm. canon yes and Mm -hmm. then talk about the process of canonization
1: yes very good I'm so glad that you had Dr. Redmond on. I uh, he's a friend, and I really appreciate his work. The you know when it comes from an Old Testament perspective, there's a long tradition, right? So he could appeal to that. But the word canon itself means rule or standard. I mean, it has application even outside of the of the Bible, but um, but w- but in the context of the Bible, it does mean it does mean those books that we hold as the standard, the rule, as it were. Um, I'm glad you use the word process because some people think of canon as an event, you know, like mm-hmm. people just sat around and took a vote. I mean, there was certainly some deliberation, but think of it as a process. There were basically 3 main issues that the early Christians were were thinking about as they worked on this. I mean, one of them was the notion of apostolicity, you might say, or how these writings were connected to the apostles. So keep in mind from a pragmatic standpoint the apostles you know were human so they started to die off but early on we had an oral tradition right the stories about Jesus we had people talking about it we had these letters start to get written so how these writings were connected to apostles was very important mm-hmm. also was important the notion of how broadly the writings were were um, accepted and you utilized it's probably a good way to say it so, some people call that Catholicity, but Catholic means universal, so how universally these letters were or these writings were being um employed in churches throughout the then you know known world as it were, so that would be the 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 Roman world in essence moving mm-hmm. from the east to the west or west to east. so you've had how broadly these letters and these other writings were um circulated, and then also what we might call the rule of faith. I said earlier that canon means rule or standard. Uh, they had a Latin term for this, the regular fide. Is like how much these writings would be representative of the way the Christian faith was being practiced in the first, you know, few centuries. Now, um, I don't want to get ahead of any other questions you might ask, but the reason why the rule of faith fits into this whole thing as a process is you did start to have some writings that started to compete with things that um, had come through the oral tradition about about Christ. So, in other words, um, writings that were Gnostic or writings that were coming out of other places. So that also um, er, kind of compelled the Christian community to say, hey, which ones, what do these writings really represent our faith?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. No,
0: that's, that's extremely, extremely helpful because uh, on the episode we had with Dr. Vince Bontu mm-hmm. he was talking mm-hmm. about the distinction between the Protestant Bible and the Ethiopian Bible mm-hmm. and then he uh talked about you know the deuterocanon and then yeah. Enoch, the book that's of Jubilees well that's fascinating um, i love that mm-hmm. <laughs> but he made a distinction between like what Maccabees mm-hmm. with a distinction between the deuterocanon versus yeah. the gospel of Philip the gospel of thomas yeah the gospel of mary magdalene that the churches you know historically (laughs) all were like no these are outside of what we would deem canonical versus there was some variation around protestant and catholic on the deuterocanon and then with the ethiopian bible the Book of Jubilees and Enoch. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more? He talked a little bit more about it, uh, a little bit about it, but he, he made a caveat. I'm no Bible scholar. Okay. So <laughs> for for you as a Bible scholar, can you speak a little bit about uh why there's a rejection of, of those books? Because mm-hmm. sometimes people could see those books and say, Well, they're they're telling us that we should reject these books, but are they trying to hide some secret information yeah. from us?
1: well that is that is uh, the part of the challenge because I don't think it's I think it's fair to say that the early church did not put the energy into copying and uh <laughs> and reproducing those kinds of writings. in fact, they mm-hmm. probably actively worked to destroy them things that were not uh, representative of the of the regular fide of the rule of faith they saw as heretical and didn't mm-hmm. see any need for them to to be around and it wasn't even until the late actually mid to later 20th century i mean we're talking the 40s and 50s that texts were some gnostic texts were found the Naghamadi texts so we do have books like you know gospel of thomas and some of these other other writings that got a lot of um sensational uh, uh activity with the uh, da vinci code you know so so these things these writings that were found later to be Gnostic, and certainly not written by the people whose names are on them. I mean, Thomas didn't Mm -hmm. write the Gospel of Thomas, it would have been way too late. Um, So the the early church actively um, suppressed those writings, and that's the part that for some people sounds conspiratorial, but the reality was they presented a picture of Jesus that was not consistent with what had been revealed through um, the apostles and through the oral tradition associated with Christ. So from their standpoint, trying to put myself back, you know, those centuries ago, from their standpoint, they wanted to raise up something that reflected the uh, the faith and to downplay these things or even get rid of these things that did not reflect the faith. I know from later generations, we can look at that and say, well, that was conspiratorial. I think it's som- somewhat similar to how we think about um, catechism or s- those kinds of things today. We might say, well I want people to understand the faith that we've passed down in fact the very title of your of your ministry Jude 3 the 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 faith that had been once delivered to the to the Saints as it were is the thing that was being taught and propagated so when other ideas come in you have to say wait 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 this is not what we've been teaching so let's hold up what we have been teaching so yeah I think that's that's that would work for say those Gnostic texts that came later second century and later the deuterocanonical texts, they, f- they flow from a Jewish tradition. Um, you have Jews who are uh, dispersed, you know, part of this, this Hellenistic influence, a very Greek influence. So they're writing um, uh, various documents that, you know, maybe it's an oversimplification, but to some degree to bolster their faith while they're in these trying times, you know, under, the, under Greek uh, rule. So they have a, a role of bolstering faith, but even the the um, Jewish canon does not include them, and the Protestants often did include those books, but not as in the same level as the um, uh, 27 in the New Testament. So, so you had, uh, oh, early versions even of the King James had the Apocrypha in them, had those so-called deuterocanonical books in them, but they were not... Um, Held to the same level as the uh, rest of the canon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: so if I'm getting you correctly, mm-hmm. the du- the Deuter- canonical books mm-hmm. were in early versions of the King James. Yeah, but people already knew instinctively or by tradition mm-hmm. that this is kind of not held to the same level. Hmm. as the other books, is yeah. that what you're? Well, I'm saying some say? did, some did some did not okay.
1: all Christians because you know clearly the Orthodox Church they've kept some. Mm-hmm. the Roman Catholic Church keeps them and calls them deuutero, secondarily canonical so and and includes them in lectionary readings. Uh, Protestants at some point said no, these are not um, canonical, so they didn't include them in in lectionary readings or in or in um, you know practice in the life of the church. And so they they weren't they were they were not held. In fact, that was that's going early on. So just to put things in perspective, even early on, the, uh, the 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 church. When I talk early on, I'm talking like in the you know third fourth centuries. You know, they're not necessarily relying upon those books in the same way they relied upon the Old Testament scriptures, and then came to rely upon what we call the New Testament. They were aware of them, but they did not uh, rely on them the same way that they did those other writings. So that's why they could be in a secondary position. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't want to muddy the waters, but for example, we know about Hanukkah from Maccabees, right? But mm-hmm. Hanukkah mentioned in John's Gospel. So so it's the festival is mentioned, even though we know of it because of a deuterocanonical book. So it's to mm-hmm. say that it was in the world of Jewish people, even if they were not um reading those books the same way as the as the uh, rest of the old testament or as the canonical old testament Mm
0: -hmm. no that's super super helpful and clarifying Mm -hmm. um for for our audience when we think about the new testament Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons this question is very dear to my heart is because i probably wouldn't be an apologist had it not been for my Intro to New Testament class at the oh. University of North Florida. Oh, awesome. When my professor said the first day of class, I'm gonna change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. <laughs> wow. And our textbook was Bart Ehrman's intro to New oh, Testament. Okay. So growing up, PK, immersed in church, yeah. And my first exposure to New Testament scholarship was Bart Ehrman. Yeah. Was a very stark difference between sure. <laughs> what I grew up learning and what Bart presented. Yeah. And so one of the things that I realized or struggled with, really, as relates to the reliability of the New Testament, going through that class, was the dating of the Gospels. I think I don't I don't know if we played the telephone game, uh, <laughs> or that was given as an illustration. I can't remember, but I know the telephone game was brought up, where yeah, we. Yeah if you tell somebody something and then it goes around the class by the time it gets to the last person, it's going to be completely different. And then the question was posed. If this is an oral, uh, Mm -hmm.
1: faith in which a
0: lot of things and beliefs were communicated over time, then can we trust that what we have written down is what actually happened? And that is really one of the, the things in which, bart and others who follow him try to use to poke holes in the reliability and the trustworthiness of the new testament especially because the new testament is so crucial the old testament is crucial the new testament is also crucial because it holds the the really central portion of our faith the resurrection of jesus and so if you Mm -hmm. can poke holes in the the new testament you start poking holes at the fact that would the christ really rise from the dead Mm -hmm. which is the central event of our faith. Um, Mm -hmm. how should we think about the dating of the gospels? Yeah. Um, in particular,
1: well, that's great. I mean, there's a lot there, um, in your, in your question. I, for one, I, 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 I'll say this, I won't pit myself up against Dr. Ehrman. I actually have huge respect for his work in textual criticism and such, but I do think, unfortunately, um, a, a skeptical view of the New Testament has soured some people on, on the, on its reliability. Unfortunately, I would say this that, you know, let's take a, a simple example. Let's say, um, you know, we lost the original Declaration of Independence. You know, just say that. That's mm-hmm. not. Uh, I mean, this is not a Nicolas Cage movie or something. You know, some national treasure or whatever. But let's say we lost it. We could easily reconstruct it because there are so many copies around of it. But also some people have it memorized, I mean, straight out. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not, you know, what is it, that Denzel Washington movie, you know, Book of Enoch or whatever. But I mean Book of Eli, but it's not, it's not that. But it's to say that even after 200 and something years of, our, of this, of the Declaration, you know, existing, we could con- reconstruct it without a problem. Um, you have even less time passing by from the events of Jesus to when they get written down. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of just human ability to to do this. You also have people who are verifying this. The other thing that I'm uh, verifying this, meaning the the stories of Jesus. So by the time things are getting written down, you know, apostles are still alive, but they might be close to the end of their life. So which is the reason why you do write things down. So if Paul's letters are say in the fifties, starting in let's say the AD fifties or uh, fifty CE then um then the and the Gospels are coming, say some twenty years later, around seventy or so you those stories of Jesus have been circulating for a while and have a certain coherence to them that the early church could then say these four writings represent the story of Jesus well, um I guess what I'm trying to say is not a whole lot of time passed from the from the resurrection of Jesus to the writing down. the other thing Craig Evans, one of the uh, a scholar who has actually debated Bart Ehrman in, in, in certain circles he has, um, he, he has talked about how even early writings we have a sense that because we don't have the originals because they wore out that it was a long time before we got a copy but he says no those early writings could have lasted quite a while so even while you have copies there's an overlap in other words originals were existing while you were making copies so just because we have a copy say from or let's say second, third century, doesn't mean that um, it got written well after the original, if you follow my saying. It's written while there was an original. And as things started to disintegrate, you have more and more copies. So I guess what I'm trying to say is not a lot of time passed for people's memories and and the reality of the experience to be written down in the Gospels. But even prior to that, we've got even less years—like twenty or so years—for Paul to be writing letters, reflecting on the ministry of Christ and applying it to these churches' lives. Twenty years is nothing when you think about, like my my decoration of appendix example of two hundred or so years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's th- that's helpful to think about that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think when we when I was looking at the dating, it, mm-hmm. I remember I haven't looked at works mm-hmm. that New Testament book in a while. Okay. But he would date the gosp- the writings of the gospels way ahead of someone for example like Dan Wallace. Mm-hmm. So what was really helpful for me, I think in understanding as far as being a a person first exposed to New Testament mm-hmm. scholarship was understanding there is uh, a variety of yeah dating uh, um, dating hypothesis right uh, in scholarship. And yeah. so going into scholarship as a student mm-hmm. when you have no exposure previous exposure True. to scholarship. True. Yeah. If your professor is a PhD in New Testament right. Right. and right. you have no yeah. frame of reference, right. it can be intimidating. And For so you sure. get a book Yeah, And you say, well, this is what scholars say without realizing scholars say a lot on a number of different things. That's right. And so it was really helpful as I read, like, uh, Dan Wallace and Bart Ehrman had a debate on on the New Testament. Yeah. And to hear Dan Wallace's perspective versus. uh, That's right. Uh, Bar Ehrman, you can see both are PhDs in the New Testament, both have done tons of research and they both land on two different dates. Yeah, And so yeah. just because someone has a PhD in New Testament doesn't mean all of their scholarship is something we should hold on to, we can learn from, but that's also right. in in conversation with other scholars. Yes, and so right. that was right. one of the most helpful things yeah. that I learned from that experience, being exposed to both sides help me to really understand mm. the diversity of thought yes. on the, something like the dating of the Testament.
1: Well, that's, that's a powerful example. And you're right. I mean, people who are reading might not have, uh, who are listening might not have the time to read all the stuff that, <laughs> that we in scholarly circles have to read or wade through. <laughs> but your point is well made is that there are going to be I mean, we're dealing with hypotheses. We're dealing with speculation because we don't have, like, somebody writing the date up in the right-hand corner and telling us, yeah. you know, <laughs> we don't have a document like that. But at the same time, our faith and our commitments do factor in because if I'm cynical from the start, then I'm going to say, well, this can't be reliable, and and I don't have, but I have the same data in front of me that somebody else has. I think one of the things that to keep in mind when it comes to the Gospels. A lot of the questions about dating relate to the prophecy passages about the destruction of the temple Mm -hmm. which happened in around AD 70 so that's why the dating of the Gospels is a big question because if you think Jesus predicted it then those Gospels could have been written before 70 if you think that, um, that the Gospels are reflecting back on something then they could have been written after 70 so So I tend to tell my students we 're still talking around seventy um, mm-hmm. so um, that that was a clearly a cataclysmic experience for for Jewish people at this time so but even around seventy that's that 's still just about forty years after the um, death and resurrection of Jesus. Not a lot of time when you consider you know, the the culture and the simple storytelling culture it 's not a, a a huge amount of time. To distort things, people were were putting their lives on the line for this, right? And that's that's the piece that we've talked about maybe at d- different times in in Christian history, and maybe gets overlooked these days. But it's not as if the the uh, apostles ever presented themselves really as trying to deceive anybody, but rather they were zealously communicating a message and even put themselves on the line, their lives on the line for that. Um, so I think that's that's an important part of it, that while they were alive, they were trying to communicate something about Jesus that they they had experienced that got written down. Mm-hmm.
0: No, that's yeah. super helpful. Um, and I love that you mentioned that dating portion because mm-hmm. my professor mentioned that in class. Mm. And it really struck me about the, the fall of the temple. Yeah, um, because it's like if it really hinges on what you believe about Jesus and his ability.
1: Yeah, to I a, think
0: to a, to to some degree if you like you said if you believe that Jesus can predict the future which mm. he can because he is God in the flesh. Yeah. And if you believe that like mm. Erman, who at the time he was a an agnostic and I right. think he's leaned from what I hear towards atheism. I'm not yeah. completely sure. Yeah. Um he's not going to believe that jesus can predict the future so he's going to date even just i mean there's other elements to i don't Mm -hmm, want to diminish his argument down to this one perspective right but what would drive that argument for uh, ehrman is he does not believe Mm -hmm. that uh jesus is divine so if you strip his divinity he doesn't believe that jesus can predict the future so automatically when he sees jesus pre- make that prediction about the fall of the temple mm-hmm. he's going to date it post he's going yeah. to date the writing yeah. post then right um would We're, you think that's a fair fair yeah thing i think that's
1: true i think that's true of scholars who who want the gospels to be late um and when i say late I mean toward the end of the first century or even into the second century that's one part of it it's the it's the where the um prediction passages come in there are other factors too though I mean you have you have issues related to how the early church started to think about Jesus and talk about Jesus. Um, even among more conservative scholarships they would uh, scholars they would understand say the Gospel of John to be later than the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark and Luke because of how a uh, somewhat um, I was going to use the word sophisticated that might not be the best word, but how clearly jesus is portrayed as divine when i wouldn't say it's unclear in the other gospels but it's it's stark in in john's gospel and some would say oh it seems to reflect a time where the church where things were developing i I mean even even conservative scholars would say that so it's not merely a question of do i believe in in the supernatural it's also um Kind of paying attention to the world and the way people were thinking and writing and mm-hmm. such. So dating is a complicated thing. However, to 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 the bigger point here is 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 the reliability part. It's not so much just when something got written. It's how can how much can I trust what was being communicated? And for that, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, Craig Keener has a book he calls a Christobiography. I think something like that. Where he makes a a case for how reliable the gospels are, because the gospel writers were, were writing, you know, in a sense a kind of a a, a biography of Christ. They didn't they didn't they weren't um, just propagandists, you know, trying to drive an agenda. They were trying to tell a reliable story about Jesus. So there is something to be said for that. Um, we about how these writings emerged. Yeah
0: yeah no that's that's helpful mm-hmm. when we think about new testament mm-hmm. scholarship yeah. uh and the reliability there's something comes up uh that we had to wade through in <laughs> school uh and this is also something we dealt with in new testament when i took it in seminary okay the synoptic problem
1: oh yeah okay
0: can you tell our audience mm-hmm. what the synoptic problem is yeah, and how do we kind of make yeah.
1: sense of it? It's, it's unfortunate that it's called a problem <laughs> because <But, laughs> it already seems to come at us as cynicism. But it's when you've got you know th- three synoptic gospels, and synoptic, by the way, means they look alike. The mm-hmm. Greek prefix sin, S-Y-N, often can be translated with or together. And of course, the optic part is how we view it. So they look alike when we put them together. In mm-hmm. other words, they tend to flow the same way. But there are some pieces that are different than other pieces. For example, you know, we do, at Christmas time we throw everything together, but the Christmas story is different in Matthew than it is in Luke. And, of course, Mark doesn't say anything about the birth of Jesus. So we have—that's an example of what people might call a synoptic problem. You have mm-hmm. these three Gospels that tend to go in the same or- order, yet, um, you know, two of them have a birth story about Jesus, and they're different. Mm -hmm. so how do we how do we deal with that Um, there there are a couple of things to keep in mind the Gospels emerge out of a particular context meaning there's an audience all the New Testament writings emerge out of a context and that's the thing that sometimes gets missing in our conversations about the Bible uh, at least about the New Testament the context is important the people to whom these writings are given and the people behind the writing of them The circumstances that they're going through kind of helps to flavor why you write something. And also, maybe the writer, I said earlier, their agenda wasn't propaganda, but they did have agendas. They had agendas to try to demonstrate who Jesus was. So, for example, coming back to the birth stories, if Matthew wants to tell you something about Jesus that relates very specifically to the way things were happening in in his Old Testament understanding, he presents certain things about the life of Jesus. S- and Mark might present other things because he has some other point he wants to make. So the problem only exists in that they're not identical. The other part of the problem is when we have two What sto- so-called problem, is when we have two stories that are, are together, but they vary in points. Uh, mm-hmm. this, this I'll give you one quick example. It happens in Matthew's Gospel um, and Luke's Gospel. So Matthew tells the story of a centurion whose servant gets healed. Luke tells a story of a centurion whose servant gets healed. They both and in, 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 um, um, uh, have an interchange with Jesus where they implore Jesus to, um, he doesn't even have to go to the person's house. He says, I know how authority operates. You can just say the word and my servant, servant be healed. So some of your listeners might remember that story. But in Matthew's gospel, he's approached by uh, the centurion in Luke's gospel it says that there's these these synagogue rulers who come and talk to Jesus on behalf of this centurion so already you've got a difference in how the story is being told even though it flows pretty much the same way and there's some difference in wording so what does that mean it means that we've got oral traditions where some parts of that story are emphasized for in Matthew's world as it gets told and some other parts of the story are emphasized in Luke's world. Now, if you're cynical, you can say, ah, they don't match up exactly, so that means they, that somebody made it up. Um, actually, I think it's better that they don't match exactly, because to me, that adds strength to the story, because it's saying, oh, Luke's people heard this story, and, and certain elements got highlighted, because he wanted to emphasize some, some things for his audience. Matthew similarly so for me that actually adds veracity because if I told you the exact same story um, in two different places and uh, it was it would be like (laughs) it would be like somebody who did a crime and turns to their friend and say look let's get our story straight so we can tell the exact same story and when you have everything line up exactly the same there's more skepticism Than things that vary in spaces that show that there's a flavor to those stories or a nuance to them or even a detail to them that that to me heightens the authenticity. So the problem is resolved by thinking in terms of what's the context? um, Meaning who are these people writing for and then what's the author's sort of theological and historical kind of agenda like what do they want to emphasize? So even in our interchange today somebody listening to it you know a month later might zero in on one or two things that we said and say, well, that's what the podcast was about. And mm-hmm. somebody else will zero in on a couple of other things and say, that's what the podcast was about. And they'd both be right mm-hmm. because they were emphasizing different aspects of the very same event.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, that's that's mm-hmm. extremely helpful mm-hmm. and I think important for us to note because when you're coming from a a critical lens, mm-hmm. like you said, d- those will be ways in which you discredit the reliability of the text. Yeah, yeah. But if you're looking at it really as, like you said, this simple illustration of, mm-hmm. when somebody listens to this podcast, they summarize it completely different That's way right. than right. another person, mm-hmm. and they both are telling the story correctly. Right. They're not trying to deceive the hearer. Right. And I just think about, you know, even when I communicate as a person that speaks regularly, I'm. I tell similar stories, but right. depending on the audience, I'm going to tell it differently. That's right. That's right. I think about I, Sunday. This Sunday, I preached at a black church. Mm-hmm. I told a similar story <laughs> than when I did a lecture mm-hmm. at a, a oh oh all white seminary. I told the story completely different and I emphasized different parts of the story exactly. because I knew that the audience that I was communicating was different and exactly. what was gonna land on them was different. Exactly. Preaching at a black church, there's a way in which an art to it. <laughs> Preaching at a black church on a Sunday morning, especially it's an art to yes, communicating yes. the message. Yes. Lecturing at an all white conservative institution is a way in which you have to frame (laughs) you could be telling this using the same illustration but you frame it differently the elements you add to it because you understand the audience and you understand that everybody's not going to receive the message the exact same way so you have to kind of play to the audience that you're talking to not to manipulate them not but to make sure the message gets to their, yes, individual yeah. perspective.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's actually a great example. I'm laughing because I share those experiences. But I think it, it it's something that um, reinforces the notion of context that i was been pushing. Uh, any New Testament scholar you're going to get on here, we will all be screaming, you know, context, context, context. Because <laughs> for us, that's really the secret thing that doesn't always get felt by modern day readers. Monday mm-hmm. readers, you, I, obviously, you buy a Bible. It's all the books are put together already. Everything is collected, and we can actually be quite random with it. Read one verse mm-hmm. here, read one verse there, but that doesn't necessarily show us that the the um, the story behind it of how, say, just to pick on Paul and and the Corinthians, you know, when he's writing a letter to the the first one or what we call First Corinthians, he's writing a letter to these people that there's already been some drama going on and he's and we find out in chapter seven that he's writing a letter that's a response to a letter they wrote to him so you know that there's this conversation that's been happening and we got part of it and the church felt like we should save that and and pass that on for more people to be able to read that part of the conversation but even in doing that it forces us to say hey what what might have been happening in their world right so coming back to the whole synoptic question that's still a fair question it's not just random stories about Jesus it's stories about Jesus told with respect to the people who are getting those stories and I think the early church in its wisdom said we need more and not just one so they took four stories about Jesus because they've emphasized different aspects and even though there's a similarity of course um, they emphasize different aspects and they're told in different ways at certain points that respect the audience um yeah I mean there's f- plenty of examples of that but your example of of just how we preach and tell stories today I think is a good I- illustration.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah that's that's super helpful. Mm-hmm. Um as we're going through and thinking about the gospels and the reliability mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. I won't get into everything that we learned mm-hmm. cuz I could go into <laughs> the Q source all of those oh, things the, but oh, yeah. I, won't, I, I won't I won't I don't think that's relevant for our okay. today <laughs> But one of the things that I think is important when we talk about Mm -hmm. reliability is two things. The longer ending of Mark. Oh yeah. The ending of Luke seven going into eight. Mm. And so I had, some years ago, I had Dan Wallace on and he says the story of this. the story of the woman caught in adultery oh that's act john 7 going into 8 yeah. oh john 7 mm-hmm. i'm sorry i said luke but it's jumped I'm around ju- it's, been, yeah, in it, it's, it's <laughs> been in different places it's been in different places he said that is he would argue the most famous one of the most famous passages of of scripture that's not actually in the bible
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: because he says it came he argues that it came later yeah yeah. and then the longer ending of mark and if people when you read the end of mark yeah. you will see it noted in almost everybody but i've seen that this is this is added later right so right. how how do we make sense of the reliability yeah, when we sure. think of those two passages That right. end of john seven going into chapter eight and also that ending of of
1: mark right Those. That That's great. Those are good examples. It's under the broader category of something I mentioned loosely earlier, something called textual criticism, which mm-hmm. is when New Testament scholars are comparing all these ancient documents. And really, all they're trying to do is say, what seemed to be the first one? You know, what mm-hmm. what explains the others? So when we say first one, we mean closer to the original, right? So, mm-hmm. so textual criticism says, hey, What's closer to the original? And when it comes to those stories, particularly, let's just say the the Mar- ending of Mark's Gospel, it seems like for after verse eight, that that was added on later, which means that 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 Mark, or at least Mark, didn't write that. Doesn't mean that it's not like true, but it does mean that Mark didn't write it. So that so the the question is really originality. It's not authenticity. So, but the question really is, what do I do with that, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. so I'm trying to understand that it meant that scribes were involved in this process. It meant that when I have a document and I'm copying it over and copying it over and copying it over, at some point something gets either inadvertently left out or added, like if I miss a letter or I spell something differently, which there's a lot of that in the New Testament, which you can understand, see that human element. But what about a big chunk like this, you know, when there's big chunks? So it says says to me that some scribe got a manuscript, you know, and it ended so abruptly at verse 8, they felt like, oh, we need to, to share more. Now you could say, wait a second, were they trying to deceive us? Or did they see their job as trying to help us? And it depends on how you think about the scribes. So now mind you, this is happening before we have something called canon necessarily so if i'm thinking that my job is to help educate people in the scriptures and there's a piece that i feel like oh this would be helpful if they understood this and they added that on that they may have seen their job as helping to clarify something that was misunderstood and didn't mm-hmm. see themselves as tampering with something that was um so holy they couldn't touch it but mm-hmm. by so 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 I guess what I'm trying to say is, we could think of the scribal hand as not a hand of deception, but a, a, as attempts to clarify. And in their attempts to clarify, they were added in after those original documents, of course. So, so what, I, what I do with them is I like the way the modern translations do them. They put them in notes, and then when I talk to people about this, you know, for some people who grew up on the King James like I did, uh, for some people it's like, it's frightening, because it says, you're messing with my Bible because I only know this much. But for mm-hmm. other people, they realize, oh, there was a process here. There was a process of copying and copying and copying. And there was also a process of trying to clarify and trying to clarify. So part of my fun when I do this, because it's kind of fun to me, is to imagine, wow, what, was, what, what were the scribes trying to do? In, in, uh, in, what were they trying to clarify? Like, what was the mm-hmm. thing that's fuzzy? so go helps me to go back and so for Mark it's clear i mean the women run away afraid or they leave afraid and they're supposed to go back to Galilee and tell the disciples and you would think well wait you know i'm at this cliffhanger and for some people they don't like cliffhangers and some mm-hmm. scribes said look i know i know John has a version or i know Luke has a version let's 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 explain some of else of what happened here so people aren't left with the with the cliffhanger so it you know, I, I can't say I know the mind of the scribe, like to know their motivation, but 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 additions seem to be corrections or attempts to clarify. Maybe I shouldn't say corrections, too strong a word, but attempts to clarify or to um, or to um, share more of the Jesus story, like in the case of the woman caught in adultery. That story flowed around; it's been in different gospels. So it clearly seems, I say clearly, but most likely was a later story about jesus that some scribes felt like needed to get fit into the gospel somewhere we've got this great story about jesus it's got to fit somewhere so it was kind of it kind of generated that way mm-hmm.
0: no that's that's yeah. helpful um i think the the more maybe somebody that may be more cynical would say yeah yeah if they added those, what right. else did they add? Sure. And why do you need sure. to add? And then I could see somebody that grew up KJV and mm-hmm. you know, have this kind of don't mess with my Bible thinking about right. revelation. Right. If you add anything to this book, that's right. You know, <laughs> right. then then there's gonna be serious problems for you. You are you're a very problematic mm-hmm. individual. And so coming from those two extremes, you have yeah. those extremes about like if you add something, I this is discredited because you know thinking about the revelation passage and Mm -hmm. then also thinking about a more cynical person would be like what else did they add this seems like a if you feel like this is like a a commentary for the end of mark for clarity right can i really trust mark because essentially this goes into all of these things as and when i was exposed to it as a freshman yeah. i mean a yeah. freshman i think I'm, i don't i don't know what year <laughs> maybe sophomore year i don't okay. know freshman or sophomore year i don't know yeah. that. well, but that's early even hmm. even i just use the case in point of that that happened in i started undergrad in 2005 i sometimes when i communicate that story have yeah. said my freshman year and I think it was my sophomore year, but I can't remember, but I'm yes. not trying to deceive. It's like, I can't remember which exactly <laughs> year it was. And I think about that in relationship to oh, the, what we're just communicating a, about the gospels. That's a
1: great illustration. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not <laughs> trying to deceive. It's just mm-hmm. like, sometimes I'm like, it all is a blur, yep. it happened. I don't know if it was the 2005, 2006 class year, 2006, 2007 uh, year, but I know that it happened. And so somebody could take two different recordings of me telling a story in the world, because, you know, we're recording everywhere and say, oh, Lisa's lying because in one aspect, she said it was 2000, it was freshman year. Another, she said sophomore year, literally. Right. Don't really know. I think it's more closer to the sophomore, but it's the, what happened happened right and so right. when i think about reflecting on that and yes let the gospel message i think it's it's such a poignant illustration it, but the but the point i was making even going back to that yeah. going to I like when that. we think about that mm-hmm. how can we make sense of the reliability with those two things about not right. adding to in revelation yes and then this cynical view of if they added this they could add more things
1: right well that's That's great. I mean, I like your example because it fits well in the sort of dynamic nature of storytelling and writing. So say you wrote down what you were telling me and you were telling your story or you wrote your story down about this happening in class and what you got exposed to. And then a friend of yours comes along who says, oh, I was in that class too, Lisa. And it went actually like this. And they started to add on a few things that happened that wouldn't change your story, but filled it out, right? Mm-hmm. You would say, oh, great, thank you, that's true, I left that out. Or or they would just help to, you know, f- figure out the picture. We wouldn't have any problem with that because we would say your original story wasn't like holy or sacred, right? So we would have no problem mm-hmm. with it. The, but we have to keep in mind the dynamic nature of the of the way the New Testament was developing. So what we have now, which with a big you know, title in the front, holy Bible, was not necessarily the way it came about. As I said, it wasn't coming all intact. So it wasn't so so I don't think it's helpful to see it as adding to something when that something didn't exist as such. In other mm-hmm. words, if we've got these gospels that are written later even than Paul's letters and somebody is adding on stories in the second, third century, even before we have something called the New Testament this is all part of the process of clarifying something Mm -hmm. so i guess for me it, it it may be not satisfying for all the students but because they still see as this one thing that's intact and then saying oh somebody added on to it i'm saying it wasn't all intact it was a bunch of manuscripts that were floating around and getting copied and being shared and being listened to and being taught and over time we had the question of oh which ones are the ones we save and which ones are the ones that um we think came uh were most uh well i was gonna say most original that doesn't make sense but which one's original which one's the earliest um so that those are questions that we come up with but but the um yeah i i guess i guess i, could, I mean i've heard the cynical views and for me maybe it just happens that i st- when I start to think of the Bible as a collection of documents, rather than a book that was already intact that somebody tampered with, it's easier for me to think of a collection of documents getting refined over time than it is for me to think of a book that somebody then went over and said, let me fix it up and started, you know, tampering with it. So I, yeah, so that, that compilation over time, um, to me, oh, and by the way, that other question that you mentioned, like, what else could they have messed with the thing is we have these manuscripts I mean the manuscripts are there to show us where there's where there's um, inconsistencies or variations of some sort and so it's not and most of the time I mean the vast majority and Dan Wallace could probably give you the stats on it but the vast majority of time most none of us English readers of the Bible would even see it and we just accept it because we've got these English translations but there's a bunch of places all over where there, there's a there's a spelling of a word, and we're not sure if it's O-U-R, our, or while you are, your, you know, the way it comes out in English. So it's First John chapter 1, right around verse 4. We write these things to make your joy complete. Well, some translations, some, some versions say to make our joy complete. And we might say, are they trying to deceive us? No, somebody copied it funny. So now we've got this question of, is it our or your? Well, no big theological uh, issue rests on that, but it does show you... That there are human hands involved in copying. So nobody was adding words or trying to subtract words. They were simply copying things and trying to clarify them for the next generation of readers.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's that's so, so helpful and mm-hmm. clarifying. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I was reading a book on the Pentateuch, and mm-hmm. they kind of described the word as almost like a hypostatic union mm-hmm. 100% God uh, yeah. and 100% man. Yeah and i don't want to sound like a <clears throat> some people say are you trying to be heretical but it, it is this aspect that human hand god used human hands to write a divine work and we see uh those human hands reflected in the scribal errors we see in the copies uh is that is that a fair way to, to communicate that? I don't want to, I'm trying to avoid coming off like a heretic. But do you <laughs> see what I'm trying to say? I'm not saying it fits neatly into, because God is obviously, Jesus is perfect and the scrabble hands are imperfect, but I'm trying to give you a picture yes, of yes. the union of humanity and divinity merging for the book we have.
1: I think that's really good. And I actually, and I'm much older than you, and I've had professors say the same thing in terms of, thinking of the written word like we think of the divine word, you know, John's word for Jesus, the Lagos, I would say definitely, I mean, the way, the way the New Testament talks about the Old Testament, and then the way later New Testament documents started to talk about itself, they were mm-hmm. seeing the hand of God in this, even though they definitely were writing. I mean, look, I don't want to um, oversimplify, and, not, and I don't want to muddy the waters, but just take the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Luke says, when he's, when he's writing this thing to Theophilus, he says, it seemed good to me. It seemed good to me. He didn't say, God told me. He said, it seemed good to me to write for you an orderly account of these things. And he said, many people have tried to do this. I mean, we only got four Gospels, but he's acknowledged acknowledging a bunch of people tried it, but he said, I decided to write to you an orderly account excellent Theophilus, he says, so he of of the things that transpired. So Luke is saying in the beginning that I checked out sources. It seemed like a good idea to me, and I'm trying to do this for you and for your faith. Right? So <clears throat> he has pretty pretty much said there's a human element here and I'm doing this and he even seems to suggest his own agency in the process. But what else we see in the Bible is this sense of God by God's Spirit superintending all of this so we have this document that's put together with the spirit's agent spirits uh, push and, and I'll, I'll also say agency but but it doesn't deny the human in there I mean obviously God didn't need humans God could have just wrote it in the sky just the way you know the writing on the wall back in Daniel right I mean but God chose to use humans so and not as a uh, auto you know just um automatons of some sort of robots but humans and all their humanness. So we have a human document written by human hands under the push of the Holy Spirit. I avoid sometimes in these kind of conversations using heavy words like inspiration, because then people divide, fight over what that is. But I, I try to just simplify and say there was, there was a push, a compulsion, a, a drive that the Holy Spirit put on them to do this, and the Holy Spirit superintended in some way even though human beings were the ones who who wrote these words. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, so helpful. I think a good place place to close out our conversations. Mm-hmm. This has mm-hmm. been a rich conversation. For those who want to study a little bit of what we com- talked about and discussed here today, what mm-hmm. are some books that you would mm-hmm. recommend for them on the reliability of the Bible, oh. textual criticism? Oh. All the things that you would say, hey, <laughs> if you want to go deeper on this, because we have a, not even gone as far as no, we go. have it, it would take days probably to in yeah. <laughs> a whole course to even and that wouldn't even scratch the surface of textual criticism and the re- reliability of the text but what books can people start yeah, reading yeah that oh, that's them that's
1: more? interesting i you know it's fine i'm looking over here on my shelf because I, I you know i think a good a good introduction to the new testament is a is always nice to start um david De silva has a really nice one that's in a varsity uh, academic i v p academic um I use that in a lot of my classes, and he has a good section on there on canon on how the New testament comes about that's and then there's another one by um N. T. Wright and Michael Byrd they put together a big um introduction to the New Testament. those are big books right but and um and uh, but they're accessible i mean you can read them and it would be clarifying. I was looking at oh and then there's one by that's really straightforward um, uh, by Mark Allen Powell also an introduction to the New Testament the reason why I'm mentioning introductions is because it gives you again a sense of context that um, but there's a classic book on the uh, canon, on canon by uh, Bruce Metzger who passed away uh, not all that long ago um, a book on the uh, on Canon and I'm looking for the exact title. I was looking on myself as I don't see it re- handily. But that's I think it's just called a canon in the New Testament or New Testament canon. But um or and then there's books that talk about the textual criticism I mentioned called a textual commentary on the New Testament. Those those can get a little deep, but I would start with a New Testament introduction like the one by Powell or De Silva. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. No, that's helpful, and yeah. I would encourage even parents that are listening, if you hmm. have a child going off to college, oh. um, and they're going to uh, a regular institution, and they might have a intro to New Testament or intro to religion class that may be freshman or sophomore year, mm-hmm. it is good to prepare them with some of these intro to New Testament books. Yeah, I think that's You good. might not think that uh, they want something that deep, but <laughs> I always tell people, young people are actually in the sometimes the best position to learn robust concepts than older people because Mm. older people have been out of school for some time and Mm. they're not wrestling with complex things but younger people are in class they're (laughs) learning chemistry (laughs) geometry calculus history they can actually engage some of these rigorous ideas in a more robust way than parents yeah and so don't Necessarily, dumb it down because if you dumb it down so much and you make it all about excitement, when they get to a class, right? Like I was in the intro of New Testament, they're going to be overwhelmed, and whatever the professor says is what they're going to go with because right. the professor has a PhD, yeah, and they don't know anything else outside yeah, of that. That's a good and so point. Good point. It is imperative, I think, that we equip our young people mm-hmm. with the tools they need. If you're going to send them off to a a, a institution. Um, that may not have the Christian values you mm. hold.
1: so well, I say amen yeah I yeah. it's always good to be prepared and yeah and some and preparation includes good reading and research yeah thank
0: you yeah mm. so thank you so much Dr. Edwards how can people get in contact with you on social
1: oh I'm almost everywhere at Rev Dr. Dre R-E-V-D-R-D-R-E I have a website RevDrDre.com that's where I'm at on Twitter Instagram and Facebook
0: And you have a new book coming out.
1: I do. Thank you for mentioning that. I have a book called Humility Illuminated. It's with IVP Academic. And I do sort of like a biblical theology of humility, but I have a lot of practical examples that come out of my ministry experience. And hopefully it can be uh, academically and exegetically rigorous, but at the same time engaging for how we do ministry and how we think about this virtue of humility. Thank you.
0: Awesome. And when does that come out?
1: It comes out in the fall of 2023, October, November, around there. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. We'll have to have you back on to talk about, oh, I would love that. about hum- humility. Thank you. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at Jew3Project.org or subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast or watch it on the YouTube or Facebook page. Um, we're at Jew3 Project everywhere. Uh Remember, you could become a monthly partner financially by giving either online at g 3 projectorg You can hit the donate uh, button and there'll be an option to give by mail. The address to where you make your check payable to all of that is there. And then you can give online if you would like to do it electronically. Um, merch our curriculums. The most recent one, Courageous Conversations and Unspoken, that goes with the documentary. You can get the unspoken curriculum at unspokenmovie.com um, and you can watch the documentary um, on Amazon Prime you can get this at on Amazon just by looking up Courageous Conversations uh, we appreciate your support we always say every gift helps equip so if you're a partner with us financially, you're helping us to further the mission and the vision of the g 3 Project. We could not do this without you. Until ni- next time, uh, grace and peace and God bless. And remember here at the g 3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at ju 3 projectorg Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at wwwju 3 projectorg